Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. How's it going for you? Uh, it's not going too well for the BBC, I'm afraid. Richard Sharp has just resigned. Uh, he is the chairman of the BBC, or rather was the chairman of the BBC. Uh, he says he should have mentioned potential perceived conflicts of interest. Uh, he says, I would like once again to apologise for that oversight, inadvertent though it was, and for the distraction these events have caused the BBC. This is basically the result uh, of an independent inquiry uh, that's been going on for quite some time into the fact that Richard Sharp uh, basically organised a loan for Boris Johnson uh, while he was Prime Minister uh, and didn't declare it to the BBC bonds that uh, are supposed to know about these things. Uh, and he says he, there was no evidence found to suggest that he played any part whatsoever in the facilitation, arrangement or financing of a loan for the former Prime Minister. Uh, but he says, nevertheless, uh, he's going. He's going to be leaving the job uh, forthwith. We'll have a little clip for you uh, in a moment. We've got lots to talk about this morning, though. Richard Tice is here. Uh, we're going to put him up as the next chair of the BBC. Uh, I think it's a great idea. Uh, I think he could probably slash the expensive uh, organisation uh, at, a, at a stroke, uh, but we'll get to that later on. We'll also talk about the dreaded trade unions who have now decided they hate Britain so much that they're going to strike on FA Cup final day, they're going to strike on Derby day, and they're going to strike when the Eurovision Song Contest is on in Liverpool as well. Also, what's going on in the civil service, or the snivel service as some people call it? They don't seem to want to do any work at all. Every single thing that they do seems entirely designed to stop them from doing anything whatsoever. They're now uh, trying to make out that Stephen Barclay is a bully. Uh, they're also decided not to do anything to do with the European Union either, plus the police. I mean, I'm sorry to sound a little bit, uh, I don't know, uh, negative about them, but apparently there's about 547 burglaries a day that don't even get investigated, in addition to which the police don't seem to be able to spot a murderer. I mean, it's not great, really, to be honest. If you're in the police and somebody's been killed and they, you might think they've been murdered, surely you should be able to spot that uh, because it should be in your instinct to do so. We shall see. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. There's all sorts of other stories to do as well. Uh, but let's get right to it because we're very busy this morning. Once again, a senior figure has resigned just before my show starts. Brilliant. Makes my job very easy. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Before we say a very good morning to Richard Tice, shall we see uh, what Richard Sharp had to say for himself uh, as he resigned this morning? I feel that this matter may well be a distraction from the corporation's good work were I to remain in post until the end of my term. I have, therefore, this morning, resigned as a BBC chair to the Secretary of State and to the board. It was proposed to me that I stay on as chair until the end of June, while the process to appoint my successor is undertaken. And I will, of course, do that in the interests of the corporation's stability and continuity. So, Richard Sharp is no more. Richard, very good morning. Unbelievable. I mean, he's got it so, so wrong mm. all the way through. Yeah. Uh, there was a clear conflict of interest. He's been found out. Yeah. Finally, finally, at the very last knocking, he has resigned. And when he resigned, he couldn't even bother 
to put a tie on. No. I mean, what a shambles the man I mean, looked. It is absolutely Just ridiculous. ridiculous. I mean, he's basically said that he didn't think that he um, was very much involved. The report by Adam Hepinstall KC uh, said that he was very limited in his involvement uh, with this um, facilitation of a loan for Boris Johnson. Uh, but he says, I wish, I wish with the benefit of hindsight that this potential perceived conflict of interest was something I had considered to mention. This is when he was interviewed for the job. Now, if you were to go for this job um, and you would get to the interview stage, if there was anything that was in any way a conflict of interest, such as, oh, by the way, um, a couple of years ago, I arranged a loan for a friend of mine who happened to be the prime minister. You might you might mention it. You might think so. But here's the point. This has been going on for month yeah. after month after month. And he has doggedly tried to stay the course mm. and waited until the very last second at the beginning of of one of your shows, rather yeah. like Mr. Rob. Indeed. Uh, uh, to resign when actually he's finally in the report being found out. I mean, it just shows it shows the inte- or the lack of integrity mm. of the man that he hung on right to the bitter end. No decency, yeah. no principles, no standards, not even the standards of wearing a tie. Yeah. Good riddance is what yeah. I say. Doesn't it also show the BBC to be a sort of toothless organisation? Because surely somebody at the BBC should have said to him, you know, you really ought to get out of here before this gets embarrassing. Because now it's embarrassing. It looks bad for the BBC, looks bad for him. Great. But he it's... claims during this resignation speech, uh, because people have all, all, people who have defended him in the past have said, oh, well, he doesn't have much to do with editorial policy. He doesn't have much to do with the running of the organisation. It's a kind of titular title, blah, blah, blah. He's going on about how he's been, you know, raising money for the BBC World Service, how he's been, you know, involving himself in, in programming and dramas that have been commissioned he's been commissioning all sorts of things i thought that wasn't the job of the bbc chairman it's not the job of the bbc chairman what but what is clear is that for many months now it has been increasingly embarrassing for the bbc having to essentially defend uh, his lack of integrity because he hung on for for grim death by the fingernails right so it has been embarrassing i think it's actually been a bit humiliating for the bbc and it's 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 astonishing uh, it reflects incredibly badly on him. Yeah. Uh, it obviously reflects badly on Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, yes. who extraordinarily is also clinging on to his job. Uh, the fact that he didn't uh, raise this properly at the time, there was mm. a sort of a glancing reference. Um, and I think, to be honest, uh, people are not surprised that Boris Johnson was involved somewhere along the line. Yeah. But, um, yeah, look, this is, uh, there is there is now a vacancy. And uh, who knows? I mean... <laughs> Will anyone want the job, Mike? Right. That's the question. Well, exactly right. Here's what he also says, right? Uh, Sharp says, when he introduced businessman Sam Blythe to Cabinet Secretary Simon Case in December 2020, uh, referring to the loan discussion concerning former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he did so in good faith and, in his words, with the best of intentions. I mean, nobody cares about whether he had the best of intentions or he did it in good there's, faith. There's, the fact is, he shouldn't have done it. Well, there's a, there's a thing called due process, mm. and he failed to follow it, and then he failed for many months... To, to actually accept his failing mm. and, and that he was causing damage. He was giving damage to the government, damage to the BBC, damage to his own reputation. Yeah. Just extraordinary, actually. I mean, the BBC really now seems to me to be completely holed below the waterline. You know, there's another report from the Public Accounts Committee out today in which it says that it's really not fit for the digital age and that it's being run like a sort of analogue business. They've got hordes and hordes of people in the, in the organisation. Nobody knows what they do. They've got uh, ridiculous... Look, they've got 64 know, radio stations. We all know that it's, it's bloated. It's got a huge budget. Uh, it's very wasteful. Right. You only have to look at the Gary Lineker saga. Yeah. And again, just the, the embarrassment of that whole saga, mm. you know, who could do what on social media. Uh, and of course, 
the greatest embarrassment of all that actually match of the day viewing figures went up when yes. he was off the show. <laughs> so why do you need to pay him one and a half million quid right. for doing a, you know one show a week for yeah. heaven's sake? I mean the oh, whole no. thing's just it, it just stinks mm. of of a waste of money. Yeah. And when you see you always know it when you walk into the uh, the reception of a big company yeah. and if it's really sort of uh, luxurious mm. And very spacious and the highest quality. You know that that amount of waste just permeates through the whole yeah. organisation. Yeah. Well, and like all public sector bodies, they don't have to account for the money. Somebody, I was listening to Jeremy Carl's little special on the BBC, which went out last night, funnily enough, and and it was said that the BBC was effectively set up to spend money. It wasn't <laughs> set up like anything else in the world, right? It's set up simply to spend yeah. money. It doesn't it doesn't really make any money. It's not meant to. The good news is that all of this is heralding the demise of the licence fee because I think the mood of the public now is moving towards saying, yes, there are elements of the BBC that does some fantastic stuff, but you want to be able to pick and choose on a shopping list of uh, of services in the same way you pick and choose from, from other uh, entities, where you, you pick and choose from the likes of Talk TV or... Yeah. or possibly uh, from other broadcasters. You pick and choose from Netflix or Amazon. Well, you should be able to pick and choose from the BBC. And then, actually, it's down to the individual. Then they're subject to commercial pressures. Mm. Then they'll stop wasting other people's money. Yeah. And the Gary Lineker saga, actually, you could say, probably forced this particular situation to happen because, you know, it was clear during that, as you say, that not only was uh, was the Director General powerless to stop Lineker from saying whatever he wanted and doing whatever he wanted uh, and, and literally calling out a sort of national BBC strike of sports presenters, yeah. um, but but so was Richard Sharps equally powerless to do anything. Yeah, they were, they were all completely powerless because... Uh, they had allowed a situation where the man was 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 bigger and seemingly more important than mm. the organisation. But the proof came on the day when yeah. actually the people said no. No one is bigger than the organisation, mm. and more people watch Match of the Day without those overpaid yeah. presenters than with. And it was a great opportunity to say, do you know what? We're going to reset, fire the lot of them, yes. bring in some young new yes. blood for a fraction of the cost and will generate a new but dynamic course, match of the day show where actually you have a bit more football. But on. of course it's being said now that not only was Tim Davey incapable of dealing with all of that because he's technically a marketing guy, doesn't know much about editorial judgment, and so and also was Richard Sharp sort of uh, in the firing line, so he couldn't really come out and make moral judgments about what people were making or what they were doing because yeah. he was himself under pressure. And it's sort of not the job of the chairman. I mean, that, that really was the job of, mm. of Tim Davey as yeah. the director general. And, and essentially, you know, he sanctioned... Uh, and suspended uh, Lineker for the Saturday, uh, but then lost all power because the others uh, carried, essentially sort of went on strike alongside yeah. him, and that was that. Right. And you'll be pleased to know that just as they have an opportunity now to start again at the BBC, they've managed to blunder their way through um, <laughs> what can only be described as the most ridiculous statement I've only just read. The BBC board has described Richard Sharp as a, quote, person of integrity and a very effective chairman of no, the BBC. No, What? No. What? I mean, well, what would you call somebody who doesn't have any integrity? What, a guy that should have re- revealed something that he didn't reveal, which he's now revealed, uh, and he should have resigned months earlier? He's literally resigned for a lack of integrity. Yes. And for failing to <laughs> declare because of his lack of integrity. Yeah. And the, the the board of British clowns called the BBC <laughs> uh, have, have said that he's got integrity. Well, it gets so better. why has he resigned? It gets better. How about this? We accept and understand Richard's decision to stand down. We want to put on record our thanks to Richard, who has been a valued and respected colleague and a very effective chairman of the BBC. Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, have they got any you, sort of sense of, of, of themselves truly, at all? truly, truly could not make it up. 
utterly, utterly I mean, surely what the BBC should do now, and I mean, I know we're, we're sort of slightly with our tongues in our cheeks saying that you should apply, but I think you actually should to see how far you can get through the process. Well, I think we should ask people, maybe I should apply on a cost-cutting, value-generating yeah. manifesto. Absolutely right. You know, sort of time a, to save us all a few quid. A BBC manifesto you for know. the hard-pressed licence fee. Yeah, yeah the Tice manifesto for the British Clowns Organisation, <laughs> whatever it's called. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing. That'll be the night sure, job. Surely the point about the BBC BBC now is that they need somebody to come in and literally strip it bare, you know, go open all the doors in all of the sort of secret corners of Broadcasting House, kick out all the people that are doing absolutely nothing, spending and wasting uh, taxpayers' money, get rid of half of the business, you know, sell off the radio stations, you know, get rid of the online business, produce, you know, David Attenborough shows and the news, yeah, and I, that's it. I've absolutely no doubt, frankly. Uh, that if, if uh, anybody, any any serious manager, successful CEO of a business, yeah. if I went in there, I'm quite sure I'd take 20% off the cost pretty yeah. rapidly right. and no one would notice any difference in terms of the quality of the output that people saw yes. or heard. And, that and is unlike how- Richard Sharp, you wouldn't be removing £160,000 a year as a salary either because no. I'm sure you'd probably do it <laughs> like you know, Mr Bloomberg just, ran New York for a pound. Look, the, the point is you've just got to get the job done properly yeah. and quickly. Exactly. And it would be a great privilege shambles. to do so. I mean, this is supposed to be the sort of jewel in the crown of the world's broadcasting organisations. And it's quite, quite frankly on its knees. It's a shambles. It can barely get from one point to another point without something embarrassing happening. Um, we've got a statement from Tim Davey coming. We'll bring you that next. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, the resignation uh, of the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, has just happened. If you've missed the start of the show, uh, he's gone. Uh, the BBC says he's a man of great integrity. Uh, he's resigned because he's not a man of great integrity, so I'm not sure how they've managed to get that so completely and utterly wrong. Uh, and they've thanked him for his service. He's been in there for just over two years. Um, Boris Johnson's got no comment this morning. Tim Davey says um, uh, that basically uh, he wants to thank him for the great work that he did for uh, the BBC as an organisation. Um, this is very damaging, I think, for the BBC, uh, and I think it's going to cause an even bigger kind of tumultuous um, avalanche of complaints and a restructuring surely has to be now on the cards. And we'll bring you more uh, later on in the show because we'll be talking to um, Rebecca Ryan from Defund the BBC. Surely it must be the beginning of the end now for the licence fee. I don't see how they can possibly in any way, shape or form carry on as they are because the BBC, for me now, is simply hold below the waterline. But let's, let's talk about something else as well, Richard, because there's plenty of other stories to, to go at this morning, not least um, the police and the civil service, as they're yes. being called. Um, because the civil service now seems to think that they run the country and maybe they do um accusing um uh, stephen barclay of bullying you know the next man on the list have well, you got it, dominic Raab? Th- this was obvious because <clears throat> the prime minister last week he failed to stand by dominic Raab. he failed to say actually that definition of bullying is absurd mm. which it was completely on the floor uh, for just seeking a bit of performance right. and for ha- wanting reports to be produced on time and so sure enough uh, the civil servants uh, they've got the bit between the teeth and they're going for it because yeah. they're basically trying to say, we run Britain. Yeah. You elected representatives. You are just sort of decorations, baubles yes. on the Christmas Part-timers. tree. But you, yeah, you, you, you go and sort of <clears throat> waffle away on the yeah. TV. We'll do the work. Right. We'll run the country. Well, or in other words, we won't do the work. Or we won't seems, do the work. <clears throat> it seems as though they, they're now sort of hell-bent on doing nothing at all. So, but, but that's the point. They're now going after Steve Barclay 
and it's the thin end of the wedge. And this is the fault of the Prime Minister because he hasn't got the courage, yeah. he hasn't got uh, the, the vision, he, he just hasn't got the cojones mm. uh, to, to stand up on. against this and to take them also, on and say it, enough's is it, enough. Is it not rather ironic and, and a bit of a coincidence that on the very day that Stephen Barclay's taking the Royal College of Nursing to the High Court and winning to, get, and winning to stop them from striking after the bank holiday, that that's the day The Guardian runs the story, which literally had no facts in it. I mean, they, they had quotes from people who were anonymous, quotes from people who were not named, saying things like, well, he's a bit macho, uh, he's not a very pleasant character. I mean, absolutely nuts of cobblers. I said this last night on the talk. They would never say that about anybody else but we basically, other than the Tory minister. We basically now know that all of these civil service stories leaked to the Guardian yeah. are lies. Yes. Because they said he, that Rob was throwing tomatoes yeah, and sandwiches untrue. and swearing. It all untrue. turned out to be untrue yeah. Lies mm. fed by civil servants in breach of their contract, yeah. in breach of the civil service code. Yeah. So all of this other stuff, we should assume, based on that threat record, are lies. And the Guardian is not worth the paper. Well, if the Guardian was a on, proper newspaper, they might actually have feel a bit of shame for running all those stories. But clearly, they don't, no, of course, because they're now going to give the same treatment to Stephen Barclay. Uh, absolutely, and then they'll be going after others. Of course, they went after Priti Patel. Whatever you think of it, at least Boris Johnson had the courage actually mm. to, to, to back his uh, Home Secretary at the time because he knew that she was trying to deliver. Yeah. She failed, but she was at least trying. This is really But now we know why. For example, the Home Office is, is absolutely hopeless, can't do anything. Nothing can seemingly get through the corridors of, 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 of the ridiculous administration blocks that they seem to put in place of everything. We know that the Home Office Union, uh, the Civil Service Union, is actually suing the government over the migrants' policy because they using, don't like it. Using taxpayers' yeah. time and money. I mean, yeah. I think it's absolutely... Absolutely Incredible. disgraceful. So we know that about the yeah. Home Office. And then we, let's look at the NHS, you know, run by the Department of Health. Uh, it's not exactly in rude health itself. It's actually completely falling apart. You'd think you might want a minister to go in and, and slam a few doors and, and throw a few things and get the bloody thing working again. Uh, absolutely right. And then you've got the Department of Justice. And that sort of neatly moves us on to the police. It does, rather. Uh, this is the police who now no longer investigate burglaries, more than 500 a day uh, going south. Nobody's doing anything about them. And now we're being told they're not very good at spotting killers and murderers either. Well, but, but here's the real huh? point, that actually the recorded offences... So this is the facts. Yeah. The facts are that recorded offences, according to the Office for National Statistics have reached a record high yeah. in 2022, mm. a record high of 6.6 million. But the government, trying to spin and waffle, and frankly lie, mm. they are using a completely different metric, well, Kit which is a, was here. is a crime survey. Kit Malthouse was here yesterday uh, talking about uh, several things, including the teacher strike, but also as his, he was formerly policing minister. Um, he actually said to me with a straight face, well, crime's going down. They're basing this on a crime survey in England and Wales yeah. based on people's perceptions of crimes and extrapolations. It's got nothing to do with facts. It's got nothing to do with the recorded offences. Right. It's therefore complete nonsense and should be put in the bin. But, e but equally, if you went outside now in London and asked people on the streets of London, do you feel like it's safer? They would say, no, it definitely doesn't feel safer. And, and I've been, I do exactly that. I ask people, and everyone knows, it is not safer. And you look at the recorded numbers, and the reality is, of course, we know that lots of crimes are not recorded mm. because people have almost given up. Well, yeah. So, I mean, if, if, I mean, I've been told several stories by people who have rung this show to tell me that they've called the police um, on various occasions to report a crime, uh, only to be um, sort of uh, upbraided for calling 999 because it's not an emergency. So here, here's the statistics, actual data, yeah. as opposed to the government's preferred survey. Uh, the likelihood of someone being charged for theft, 4.3%. Mm. Uh, 
being charged for violence against someone else, just over 5%, mm. uh, and for robbery, uh, just over 6%. I mean, this is woeful. This is one in 20. Yeah. It's not surprising crime is soaring because the criminals know that the prospect of them being charged yeah. is so pitifully small yes. well, there's not much prospect- they might as well just carry on. Well, there's not much prospect of them being caught, never mind being charged. Exactly. And if they are then charged, there's not much chance of them getting to court. And if they do get to court, there's not much chance of them being sent anywhere. And if they are sentenced, then there's no chance they'll serve the full term no. sentence because they'll be let out probably just over half the exactly. sentence. Exactly right. And I mean, apparently, according to a report which has just come out, and it's based around that serial killer, the gay serial killer who uh, is now thankfully in prison after killing four men, they're saying they could have prevented three of those murders if they'd been a bit better at investigating the first one, right? Um, but we're being told that the police now are not being trained to be curious. <laughs> I mean, sorry? I, I'd have thought that's literally a core function so of the basically job. basically, when a police officer walks into a crime scene... The first thing he thinks about is, well, it's obviously not a murder, apparently. I mean, it, it's literally one of the main functions of the job is yeah. to be out there, to be visible, mm. to be seen on the streets uh, as a preventative measure and to be curious yeah. about what's going on around you. It's an old word you. to use, isn't it? It's curious? Just, well, I mean, it's, it's quite a gentle word, really. Yeah. You should almost be sort of... Um, well, you'd like them to use the word forensic, perhaps. You, well, you'd, you'd like them to be alert, yeah. vigilant, right. curious... Yeah. And sometimes downright suspicious. Yeah, suspicious, I think, is the word we're looking for. <laughs> you know, if you're up in the police and you're not suspicious of people, you're probably in the wrong job. Um, I got this from Tony. He says, Richard Sharp was Rishi Sunak's boss at Goldman Sachs and facilitated the loan for Boris Johnson. He was compromised. I mean, is there any blowback on Sunak over this or, or over Boris Johnson? I suspect, I mean, look, everyone's given up on Boris Johnson because there's just so much noise around him. It's just an, a, another bit of yeah. noise in the cacophony of noise. Mm. I don't think it has much blowback on Sunak, mm. uh, really, to be honest. I think that it just has much more implications. Of, I mean, the BBC's statement saying he's a man of integrity because he's resigned because of a lack of integrity. Yeah. I think there should be real <laughs> blowback on the BBC's board. Yeah. Uh, they need to consider their Absolutely. own positions. Maybe frankly. they should all resign. <laughs> you know, just get rid of themselves. That would be a way to go. Uh, Richard, you're back on Sunday. What back have you on got Sunday. For us? Yes, well, uh, it'll be a, a full on show. Sunday sermon, I'm just working out. Maybe it'll be my BBC manifesto. It could well be. I mean, things that you could do with the BBC, because, I mean, it is. there are many things that are good about the BBC, but they're being sort of really buried in the bad news because there's so much bad news surrounding the BBC now. You know, the ridiculous amount of management consultants that they've got, the ludicrous amount of money they pay some of their presenters, yes. the craziness of the, of the licence fee which they've just put up. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's like so many things in the UK... Uh, potentially a good idea, but it's just gone being badly managed, badly run, uh, and therefore it's in essentially it's being sort of humiliated, mm. and people's confidence and trust in it is disappearing. A bit like the police, we need a fantastic police force yeah. that we've got confidence and can trust in. When you know, when I was a kid and you growing up, you were taught you could trust the police. Yeah. It was sort of the foundation of. Uh, of the UK, yeah. and you, you were taught you could trust the government, but these things are under threat, under mm. serious risk. They've been undermined for so long, possibly from within, you'd have to say. Richard, thank you very much indeed. See you on Sunday at 10 o'clock. Uh, we'll be back with Dame Anne Rafferty. I'm going to ask her why uh, the Royal College of Nursing keeps trying to strike when they know it's actually illegal. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, uh, what a start to the show. BBC chairman resigns just before we go uh, to uh, the news. Fantastic. Um, 
I think it should be the beginning of an avalanche of resignations. I would say get rid of the entire BBC board who seem to not have a clue how to run the BBC. Uh, they think that uh, this guy, Richard Sharp, is a man of great integrity. When, as Richard Tice says, he's just actually resigned for having no integrity. So, I mean, where does that leave the BBC, for heaven's sake? And we'll bring you more on that coming up in the next hour with Rebecca Ryan from Defund the BBC, because surely now uh, this is time for a root and branch change, a root and branch uh, complete and utter overhaul uh, of the organisation, because it's overweight, it's over here, it's overburdened with idiots, and quite frankly doesn't really do the job uh, that it is supposed to do. Uh, let us now talk, though, about the other big problem that we have in the world right now, and that is, of course, the striking nurses, the striking railway workers. We've got Aslef coming out and saying that they hate Britain so much they're going to strike on FA Cup final day, on Derby day, and they're also going to disrupt the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, what's wrong with them? Are they trying to make themselves public enemy number one? The latest uh, on the nurses' strike is, of course, um, that the decision to strike through this weekend uh, has actually been halted by a judge because um, Stephen Barclay, the NHS um, uh, health minister, uh, basically health secretary of state for health, I should say, uh, went to court yesterday to find uh, that to go into the second day of strike, which was Tuesday, uh, was in fact illegal. Let's talk now to Dame Anne Rafferty, professor uh, of health and nursing policy at King's College London, former president of the Royal College of Nursing and as he always says she does not speak for the Royal College of Nursing. I'll say that for you um, Dame Anne just uh, to save you the time. How are you doing? Yes very well thanks. Good to talk to you. Um, surprising uh, I suppose that uh, it ended up in the courts yesterday. Um, I know that the uh, the RCN was saying well you know this is the problem that Steve Bartley would rather take us to court than sit down around the table. But it's a bit more complicated than that isn't it? Well, I'm not privy to all of the dynamics and, you know, my my understanding is that there was a difference in the interpretation over the calendar and the, and the dates. And part of that, I gather, was mediated by trade union law and its intricacies. So I think it is more complex, it's more subtle than probably portrayed. Um, and, you know, I... I I think that actually not getting around the table and having a sensible conversation about the date in and of itself and, you know, taking court action off the bat uh, seems a rather draconian kind of step to take. Well, it does. But then on the other hand, you know, um, it was the case, was it not, that the RCN um, bosses had accepted the Stephen Barclay offer, the most recent one, and recommended it to their uh, rank and file, um, who had then rejected it. So they decided they'd rather, rather than sort of sort the, the problem out, as recommended by their, uh, their union bosses, uh, they decided to, to not sort it out and go back on strike again. Absolutely. And I mean, ultimately, it's the members who make these decisions. Um, and I mean, I think partly that might have been driven by, as you know, the cost of living crisis and the fact that actually 61% of nurses who are on, uh, or health workers, frankly, who are on the lowest banding, band five, um, of all health workers. That's a very se severe and significant proportion. That means they're really the lowest paid. And I think that's where some of this pressure is coming from. The fact that nurses of all, of all health workers are amongst the lowest paid. So they're feeling the pressure more than those who are slightly better paid. 
Well, maybe, but there's also nurses working uh, in other areas, aren't there? There's also unison workers in the NHS who have ex- accepted a, a pay deal. There's also um, many nurses who didn't strike, many nurses who didn't vote to strike, and many nurses who are in those low-paid jobs who are just happily working away. So I think you can't really categorise it as all nurses feeling the pinch. It's a certain group of nurses at the Royal College of Nursing who I would suggest to you are motivated uh, by political ideology. Well, I, I can't comment on that, um, really, as you, as you might expect. But what I do know is that there is a groundswell of support for striking. And, I mean, everything relies ultimately in getting the vote out and who actually puts the cross on the ballot paper. Um, and so mobilising that vote is absolutely essential to ensure it's as representative as possible. Yes. And I'm sure that's what the, the RCN want. Yes, but an awful lot of nurses didn't vote to strike, though, is my point. Well, I mean, these 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 are always um, difficult decisions. And obviously it wasn't a unanimous vote, but uh, I think it's a significant majority. And this is a historic time, you know, the fact that this dispute... Is, is still going on, that there's still, you know, the motivation, the fire in the belly. Mm. If anything, I think, may be increased as a result of the court's decision. Um, so it could it could drag on even further. But again, everything relies on how the ballot actually goes and how many people turn out to and vote to continue the yes. strike action. But, but many it- people are going to be weary as well because it's exhausting enough you know, working post-pandemic and then having this industrial action on top of it. Well, exactly. And isn't it uh, unfortunate as well that it's happening around a bank holiday weekend where already the NHS is kind of um, working with a sort of skeletal staff? I mean, there are lots of parts of the NHS and lots of um, different health authorities which which are not on strike at all, and I salute them for that. But, I mean, at some point or other, the nurses are going to have to accept what is being offered to them, surely. Other people have accepted deals. You know, the, a lot of the trained strikers have accepted deals. The teachers are now still on strike, looking for more. The junior doctors are still on strike. You know, but by and large, the government appears to be, by sitting it out, um, sort of winning. I don't think that's the case. I mean, we're going to hear later on today, you know, what the decisions of some of the other unions next week, I gather, the staff council will review its position and uh, I think that that's when we'll know, you know, what the total complement of union support is mm. for this deal. But clearly there's there's a, a very significant majority of nurses who, who feel they don't want to settle this dispute at the moment. And they're the ones who are in the driving seat and they're the ones who are going to have the ultimate say. The other thing that I always find interesting is that, you know, as much as we hear that many um, operations and procedures are um, cancelled and hundreds of thousands of people aren't able to get the help that they want from the uh, National Health Service that they pay into, um, it doesn't appear to be having a massive effect on the NHS. Whenever they do go on strike, you know, it seems to just come and go without too much of a fuss being made. Well, it's certainly going to impact, you know, one of the government's key pledges, isn't it, of dealing with the backlog. And, uh, I mean, it can't be... Do you think uh, that's why they're the doing gov- it? In the, gov- in the government's interest. No, I think that's a byproduct of, of, of the action. It's not to sabotage that in, in, in any, any way. I don't think that's within the moral compass mm. of nurses necessarily. But I think that um, it's interesting. There was some economic analysis of the cost of the strike as well. And it actually seems to be less than people were predicting 
as well. But there's, there's no doubt it does cause, you know, very, very significant disruption. But I suppose, on the other hand, it's somewhat miraculous that despite that, many of the routine kind of processes of the NHS do manage to continue, you know, under these severe and significant uh, sources of stress um, that are applied to it. So I think it's it's a bit of a conundrum, but I can see that, you know, lots of the metrics are going in the wrong direction. Yes, I think so. Um, but unfortunately, in the end, it's the public that is suffering, uh, even if it is not as badly as uh, perhaps we thought they would be suffering. There's an awful lot of people missing out on the health care that they've paid for, an awful lot of people missing out uh, on getting fixed up uh, by the people who claim uh, that they do no harm. You know, the doctors for a start uh, and also now the nurses. Surely they must at some point realise that, you know, if they wanted to do this, maybe they should be in a different business. Well, I think the public support questions are really interesting because uh, if one was expecting it to wither and, and, and wane, it actually isn't. And in fact, it's it's growing for the nurses. So I think that's something that really helps to stiffen the sinews of those nurses who are pushing forward on on strike action and making their decision you know once the ballot go, goes out public opinion as we know is is absolutely crucial to how this uh, dispute will play out and that's what i mean i think public opinion is very much uh, sort of neither here nor there at the moment people see people on picket lines laughing and joking and singing and they don't see people who are as they put themselves in it um you know suffering they don't see people who are so poor that they can't afford to eat they don't see people who are so miserable that they can barely sort of stand up what they see is a lot of people demonstrating against a government they don't like well, I think there's been a significant surge of public support during the dispute. There's no doubt about that. That really has rallied. And members of the public actually going on the picket lines and telling their own stories, many of which have been reported by the press and the media, and are, are you know, very, very moving. So I think that sense of solidarity, because let's face it, this is not just a dispute about pay. You know, it's about staffing. It's about patient safety. It's about also getting a better pay system, which is long overdue in terms of its uh, reform. And it's about the sustainability of the National Health Service. So these are issues that are very close to the public's heart as well. And I think there's a, a very um, tight alignment between health workers, nurses and the public on this. And that's why, you know, these synergies uh, prevail. Well, possibly so. But I think an awful lot of people are getting a bit fed up with it. And, and I don't think they could last too much longer uh, by simply just standing on picket lines, demanding things that can't be given to them. But we shall see. Uh, Dame Anne Rafferty, thank you very much indeed. Professor of Health and Nursing Policy at King's College London, former uh, president of the Royal College of Nursing. Pat Cullen, of course, from the Royal College of Nursing, was the one who suggested to the rank and file nurses that the last government offer was one worth accepting. And they rejected it. Because Why? Because I think they'd rather like going on strike. It can be the only reason. Because they can't possibly believe that they're going to get the amount of money uh, that they were asking for at the beginning. Same goes for the junior doctors. And what about that Hippocratic Oath? First, do no harm. Well, it doesn't say don't cancel um, procedures and don't cancel operations. But that's what it means. And that's what they're doing. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Another massive story this morning on this show. Uh, the BBC chair has resigned. The chairman, uh, I like to call him, uh, actually Richard Sharp, resigned after a report finds that he breached the code on public appointments. Uh, he's announced his resignation, but of course, typical of the BBC, they're keeping him on till June uh, in order so that uh, they can have a smooth transition to a new BBC chairman. We've already suggested Richard Tice puts his hat into the ring uh, and he could go in there with a slash and burn mentality uh, and save us all a bit of money because surely to heavens now this is an opportunity for the BBC uh, which has taken ages to get to this point with Richard Sharp uh, because of his involvement uh, in a loan that was made to Boris Johnson who was then Prime Minister. Two and a half years this guy's been in practically or two and a bit years um, and he's finally now gone and the BBC have said uh, he's a man of some integrity. Well I'm sorry he's actually left because he doesn't have any integrity. Surely that's the point. We're going to talk to Rebecca Ryan, political campaigns consultant and campaign director uh, at Defund the BBC. Uh, surely no better reason now uh, than to get rid of the licence fee. As far as Tim Davey is concerned, uh, he says this. Uh, he's, of course, the director general. Uh, on behalf of the BBC executive, I would like to thank Richard for his service to the BBC and the drive and intellect he brought to his time as chairman. Working with him over the last two years has been rewarding and Richard has made a significant contribution to the transformation and success of the BBC. The focus for all of us at the BBC is continuing the hard work to ensure we deliver for audiences both now and in the future. Well, there's also another report that's come out uh, from the Public Accounts Committee in which the BBC is described as not fit for purpose for the modern age. So let's find out from Rebecca what she makes of this morning's uh, shenanigans. Rebecca, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Well, I mean, surely to God, this is now a great opportunity for the BBC to sort themselves out from the top down and to actually look at the way that they're run, to see that they are badly run and to make a change to the way they are run. Absolutely. I mean, this is just symptomatic of how power operates. And we know that the BBC works hand in hand with the blob. So any recommendation that, you know, number 10 just needs to step away from the decision making process just isn't going to resolve the issue because, you know, we're going to continue to see this kind of problem within a massive organisation like the BBC. Mm. The BBC was found to be during the height of the pandemic was found to be the least impartial British broadcaster, which says a huge amount considering they British people are being bullied into paying for it. Yes. You know? And then in 2021, we saw 2 million people decide they didn't want to pay for the BBC anymore and got rid of their TV licences because they realised that if they're not watching live TV, live broadcast TV, they don't have to pay for a, a TV licence. So, you know, this is an organisation that's in an, a real problem. It's Nobody wants to pay for it anymore. We see, you know, two-thirds of uh, British people, poll after poll, show that they, they don't want the licence fee to, to, to go ahead as right. it is. So, you know, this is an organisation that's in severe problems. And as you say, this, uh, this stepping down from Richard Sharp um, is welcome, but it should be taken as an opportunity to go, you know, let's look at this organisation. Let's review the whole thing. Let's ask the British people what. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. They think and lets, you know, move forward into a, a, a system that works for everybody. Exactly right. And also, why did it take so long for him to go? Let's just have a look uh, at his speech uh, on his way out. I feel that this matter may well be a distraction from the corporation's good work were I to remain in post until the end of my term. I have, therefore, this morning, resigned as a BBC chair to the Secretary of State and to the board. It was proposed to me that I stay on as chair until the end of June, while the process to appoint my successor is undertaken, and I will, of course, do that in the interests of the corporation's stability and continuity. Oh, yeah. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks for staying around. I mean, what a wonderfully um, selfless act that is. You know, um, he makes out that he hasn't done anything wrong, effectively. Apparently, he says that he's quite pleased with the report, even though the report says that he was in a breach of ethics situation. I don't know why it took him so long to go. And the idea that um, uh, the, uh, the, the Director General, Tim Davies, says he's a man of great integrity, uh, he's basically resigning because he doesn't have any integrity. Absolutely. I mean, I just first of all want to say, what is that backdrop that he was stood against there? You know, what is it? Every opportunity to make the BBC look cheap, to make the BBC look woke. It's, you know, it's just awful. You know, so that was my first comment. But no, absolutely. And you have to think about what have, you know, what has Tim Davey achieved? What has Richard Sharp achieved right. in the position? And, you know, whilst they might all pat each other's backs and say, oh, well, he's a man of integrity and, you know, they don't want to tear him down, all of those kinds of things. That's because this is, this is a, a, you know, this isn't a, a unique situation. These people are, you know, get these positions because they've, you know, um, rubbed shoulders with the white right yeah. people, their friends in high places. Um, and so, you know, but, but what are they actually achieving while they're in there? Nobody's actually making any change happen or listen to the people who are forced to pay for the organisation. Exactly right. I mean, one allegation that has been made is that uh, the Gary Lineker saga kind of hurried this whole process along quite a bit because Richard Sharp couldn't really, in all conscience, come out and speak on behalf of the BBC against Gary Lineker uh, because his own kind of ethical dilemma was going on. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, what a mess that was. And, you know, people were in an absolute uproar. Defund the BBC was inundated with people saying, how do we how do we cancel our licence fee? What can we watch without having to pay for this? Um, And then to see the BBC, you know, it it was sort of refreshing to see them almost take a stance by kicking off the air. But then, you know, come crawling back. It was just, oh well, you know, there is no chance that the BBC ever will grasp the nettle on what's really happening out in the country and the views of the people. Um, and yeah, absolutely. So the fact that um, he's he's now gone, 
um, for Richard Sharp's now gone and that, you know, they were paralysed with fear of not being able to say anything about Gary Lineker or deal with anything. I don't think that would have been different with a different chairman, really. You know, the, it's it's all the same. It's all business as usual um, and covering their own backs and trying to perpetuate the licence fee and keep people mm. being coughing up. Yeah, exactly. And you say two million people have, have stopped paying for it now. I mean, that for most normal organisations, that would be a massive blow. But they've got yeah. so much money, the BBC, uh, that mm. even sort of, what, a couple of hundred, three hundred million quid that uh, they can do without. Exactly. And yet they still keep bullying people on their doorsteps. When mm. people, you know, our, our supporters will cancel their licence fee and they say, I'm not watching any live broadcast TV, thank you very much. I'm yeah. watching Netflix. I'm watching Amazon Prime, but not live broadcast on Amazon Prime. I don't need your licence fee. And yet they're still bombarded with red letters that are threatening thousands of pounds fines and people turning up on their doorsteps. Yeah. And we don't want to pay for your service. And it's licence fee payers, money, who who's paying for that bullying. Mm. Um, people that you know are paying for that so yeah it's it's very frustrating for people this is a, a a broadcaster that is shown to have been in breach of its contract with the british people and that contract says that it should be impartial that it should be representative and that it should deliver high quality yeah. journalism it doesn't do any of those things yeah and also in what world should the bbc in any way be entitled to be paid money by people who aren't even watching them you know, yeah. as you say, if you're watching live television, you have to pay a fee to the BBC for the privilege. Well, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's absolutely ridiculous in this day and age. And it's an anachronism from the past where they used to, used to it used to be about if you are um, hiring um, television viewing equipment, that therefore you need a licence. Because I think the, the sort of the infrastructure for broadcasting was uh, needed to be paid for. And that's how it was first brought in. So all the sort of like the... the um, the towers and what have you that mm. once all of that was embedded and people no longer actually use that they're watching things through digital you know it, it there is no way that you should be having to pay the bbc in order to uh to be watching sky sport it right. just doesn't make any sense anymore no you know? it absolutely doesn't and and i was mentioning this other uh, this other report which is out uh coming from the public accounts committee today in which it says the bbc is basically stuck in a yesteryear of tv and radio without a plan for delivering its services in a digital future so they're saying that not only is it overburdened with staff not only is it overburdened with money but they're not actually very good at spending it and they're not actually very good at preparing themselves for what's going to come next Absolutely not. And if you look at sort of the amount of content that's available on Netflix and on Amazon Prime and on Disney Plus and what have you, and then you compare it to uh, iPlayer, iPlayer has far less content available. And, you know, it's just not, they're not producing content in the same way. Mm. You know, you've got, you know, Strictly and all of these kinds of things. But the the audience for that, for live broadcast Saturday night TV in that way is dwindling Mm. rapidly. Young people do not watch TV in that way. No. Older people are sick of being preached at with every opportunity the BBC has. And so people have realised, you know, actually we can decide what we want to watch, when we want to watch it, using Netflix or Disney+. Plus. Or, you know, they can even now with ITV, Hub or uh, Channel 4, if they're happy to sit through adverts on those, if they're watching them on demand or on catch up, they don't need to have a TV licence to watch that either. Mm. So there's a lot of the traditional programmes that people would want to see that they can watch for free. So, yeah, the BBC's really um, taken a, you know, slow to act on this. And it's, you know, there is a tsunami coming down the mm. line for and they seem to be desperately clinging on uh, to the to the license fee rather than realising, you know, they need to jump into the mm. future 
of, of how people are consuming content. Also, not only are they clinging onto it, they're putting it up. I mean, they want to increase it every single uh, time they get the opportunity. And I mean, one of the things in this report, uh, which which highlights the kind of difficulties the BBC have got, is that when they, if you remember, the closed down BBC Three back in 2016, um, it was a disaster because nobody watched it online because people who watch the BBC presumably don't watch things online very much. Um, and it's now back as a proper channel. And you kind of go... Well, how did that happen? I thought they were supposed to be paring it down. Absolutely. They seem really confused. They're desperately trying to chase this youth audience, um, which just doesn't watch TV in that mm. way. And they might find, you know, one or two series on, on BBC Three that they might be a bit interested in. But they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be regular watchers. And then how do they justify this huge jump in licence fee? Um, it's just so bad because they're just completely out of touch of how people are watching tv these days mm. and how they're getting their entertainment and you know it, it just seems that nobody in the bbc they're, they're very sort of you know they have the attitude of well we like the royalty you're not going to get rid of us you're going to keep hold of the bbc mm. and they're really not seeing what's coming down the line and realizing how much variety people have to choose from right. and once people know that you don't have to pay for the TV license if you're only watching on-demand or catch-up content, as long yeah. as it's not on player, you don't have to pay for the BBC. Mm. In which case, you know, people are just switching off in their droves. They're yeah. just, you know, checking out from it. Well, they're chasing people away. I mean, look at what they've done to Radio 2. They've tried to start chasing a younger audience by appointing 48-year-old DJs um, instead of, you know, sort of 68-year-old DJs. It's not really working for them. Half of them have ended up working over here with us at Virgin, you know, but they don't seem to have a plan. They don't now have a chairman. I mean, surely to God, uh, they should get somebody in who is going to completely redesign and, and take a, a, a scythe, quite frankly, to the budgets and say, right, you're going to be preparing now for the next century, effectively. Absolutely. And if they want to, you know, have a have a successful future and the B we acknowledge that the BBC is it does have still a sort of a warmth to its brand amongst certain quarters of, of, of the British public. And it would be a shame for those people who still want to be able to watch the BBC, you know, whether that's sort of like 40 percent or whatever. Yeah. Um, the BBC needs to say, OK, we're going to protect the brand. What we're going to do is move forward into the future. We're going to really pare down what we're doing on in, in certain areas and get on the public sector broadcasting. We'll do something a lot smaller, but a lot higher, mm. higher quality. And then we'll have a high end subscription service in the way that Netflix and in Amazon Prime do. But they're just not prepared to even look at things. And I think that's a real problem for them because people are just moving away in their droves. Yeah, they really are. And they're moving to Talk TV as well, where you can watch the Dean Dorries uh, tonight at 7pm. Uh, so uh, actually it's 8pm, I tell a lie. 7pm Plank of the Week, which is even better. Uh, this is Talk TV. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Rebecca Ryan, uh, their political campaigns consultant at Defund the BBC. Defund it. Defenestrate it. DBBC it. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Well, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Mike, the civil servants who lied about Dominic Raab must be named. They cannot be afforded anonymity because their power is now out of control, says Christine in Surrey. They are servants, paid to do what elected ministers tell them to do. How in the name of God did this lily-livered attitude creep up on us? It's definitely going on in secondary schools, but more worryingly in universities as well. Hopefully it's not too late to stop this madness because there is clearly a coup mentality happening amongst unions and certain media outlets. Well, it's very true. 
Absolutely right, because the stories that were appearing uh, about Dominic Raab in The Guardian all proved to be uh, completely and utterly baseless. Similarly, stories appearing about Steve Barclay uh, yesterday in The Guardian about supposed allegations of bullying, which were not formally made, but were informally made. Um, completely anonymous sources, completely ridiculous uh, facts, no facts whatsoever, in fact. So that is the problem that we currently face. You know, all Tory ministers are bullies. That's what they reckon at The Guardian. And of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? But let's talk about uh, union bullies now, because uh, yesterday it was announced by Aslef that they're going to take three uh, or four more days of action, which are going to disrupt not only the FA Cup final, which happens to include two teams from Manchester playing at Wembley, where there'll be no trains. Uh, Similarly, they're going to boycott uh, Derby Day. And also, they're even going to mess about with the Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool. For heaven's sake, let's find out from Ben Clatworthy from The Times. What on earth is going on? Ben, very good morning to you. Good morning. Well, they clearly don't like sport, these um, as-left drivers, or maybe they just want to go to the cup final. They don't want to have to go to work. Well, absolutely. It's the as-left drivers on three dates. And again, last night, the RMT, Mick Lynch, back with another strike date. The strike there on the 13th of May, the actual day of Eurovision. What I think is interesting, though, this morning is that we haven't heard from Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, mm. what he thinks about the fact that, uh, you know, it is, a, it is an all-Manchester derby down at Wembley that day. And the cleanest, easiest and fastest way to get there is by train. Obviously, that's not going to be possible now. The network virtually shut down mm. on the FA Cup final day. But also... It would be interesting to hear from Steve Rotherham, who no doubt is happy to have his city open its arms uh, to effectively Ukraine. Don't forget, they actually won the Eurovision Song Contest last year, not us. We're hosting it for them. Be interesting to hear from him what he thinks about the fact that drivers on plus more than 60 grand a year uh, are striking and disrupting his city's uh, moment in the sun. Exactly right. And it doesn't say much for solidarity with uh, the Ukrainian cause, does it? That they're basically going to say, well, to hell with that. Uh, We're going to just go on strike so you can't get there. Well, the irony of the entire thing is that actually, as last time I checked, the trains in Ukraine are actually running better reliability than they are in the UK because the amount of strike action that we've had. So it doesn't say much at all. And actually, yes, okay, the numbers are far smaller. What's the capacity at Wembley north of uh, 80,000? The capacity for the Eurovision, I'm told, is about 6,000 a night. Uh, the Aslef strike on the Friday uh, will affect people that have stayed over from the second semi-final. Uh, the RMT strike on the Saturday will affect people going to the grand right. final. And no, it doesn't say much at all for Ukraine. But also, don't forget that we've invited lots of Ukrainian people that have come and sought refuge in the UK to go to the Eurovision. That, as I said, is for their country. Mm. And how are they going to get there? Well, on the train, lots of these uh, refugees that have come over, sought shelter here, haven't been out and bought cars. They didn't know how long they were coming for. The natural way for them to get to the Eurovision is by train, and that is not going to be possible. It really is incredible, isn't it? And how did we get here? Because I was, I knew Aslev hadn't solved their problems with um, the government, but I was under the impression that the RMT and Mick Lynch had kind of got to some kind of arrangement practically with uh, with the Ministry for Transport. But what's, what's going on? Well, absolutely. The... Uh, 
RDG, which represents the uh, train operating companies in the UK, they said that they knew that they weren't as far progressed with as left the train drivers and that while they were slightly surprised that they went for three days of action, mm. particularly hitting the FA Cup, the Eurovision and the, the Derby Day, um, sorry, the, the Derby, the Manchester Derby, they knew that the... Um, that they weren't that far progressed with the talks. But with the RMT, don't forget, they've already settled the negotiation with Network Rail. They said there won't be any more strikes. With the RMT, they said that they were far further along the line. And actually, they say to me, I was speaking to a senior rail source Mm. a minute ago, they said that that offer from the RDG hasn't actually changed in the last two weeks at all. Yet yesterday in the statement, uh, the uh, RMT said that there had been some clarification and that things have changed. I'm told categorically that that isn't the case and right. that the offer, bar the odd comma and full stop, hasn't changed categorically. So they were very surprised, I'm told, by this this source that the RTG were taken by surprise when last night at almost six o'clock the RMT came out and announced further strike action. Right. Because, I mean, people have just kind of got around it, but to be this specific on these specific dates really is incredibly cynical, it seems to me. Well, I've said it before on this show, and I'll say it again, the unions are anything, but uh, you can accuse them of being a lot of things, but you can't accuse them of being thick. They know exactly what they're doing. They've picked the dates to cause maximum disruption, but actually they're hitting people who would be minded to support them, people who uh, want to go about, go to these uh, big set piece events, but understand that everyone's feeling the cost of living pressure. It's worth remembering that, We've been talking about these strikes for coming up to a year now that since the uh, first rail strikes last summer. Um, And we're still here talking about it. And actually, the public uh, attitude towards them has changed over time. It'll be interesting to see what listeners of this this programme are texting in about, because Back at the start, I heard we you've had members of the RMT on defending mm. their right for a pay rise. What's on the table in front of them now are very attractive offers that actually I'm surprised that the public are putting up with this at all. Yeah, I know. Absolutely right. And Mark Harper was talking this week earlier uh, to the Transport Select Committee, uh, alleging that uh, taxpayers paid more than £300,000 to keep each rail worker in their job during the COVID pandemic. Naturally, uh, the rail workers would dispute that figure, but it's an awful lot of money, isn't it? The railways cost a disproportionate amount. I uh, slightly lose track of the exact figure per household, um, but Grant Shapps and Mark Harper have both trotted out these figures, and they are astronomical for what what we're actually getting and it's also worth remembering that actually the railways are disproportionately used in the southeast of england in london than they are elsewhere and actually there's an awful lot of people that look at the state of their roads they rely on their cars every day to get to work they drive through craters potholes they suffer damage to their cars because the roads are in such poor condition they've just paid five percent more council tax this year in virtually every uh, council up and down the country and the roads are in a dreadful state and all this money is being sent on the railway. And while I don't agree with everything that Mark Harper says by a long way, the one thing I do resonate with is that he says, A, it's not the Department for Trains, it's the Department for Transport, and B, right. that 
the railways cost a disproportionate amount of money and actually the strike action is going to put off a generation of people from using them and we see it already we were talking in the office yesterday and my colleagues are saying yes when they arrange things now they don't bother booking train tickets they don't know if there's going to be a strike so they just get in their car and drive there yes and you can tell that because the roads are so congested it's almost impossible to go anywhere in this country and i was in france recently as soon as i can didn't see one traffic jam i don't think the whole time i was there uh, as soon as i got off the uh, the, the shuttle uh, which was a train that worked rather well actually uh, in Folkestone straight into a traffic jam and then traffic jams pretty much all over the south coast of England and there's just too many cars not enough road space and the trains just don't work well look at the number of people that are now going to be choosing to go by car to the FA Cup final yeah. when they come into an already extremely congested city uh, it, it's inevitable that these rail strikes push people onto the road but it's also as you say it's not just on the days of the strikes that people are but using road now it's becoming increasingly common that people going away for leisure mm. which was the first area of the railways to bounce back after the pandemic are now deciding I will go by car because I know my car will get me there. Yeah, I know. Absolutely shocking. Ben, thanks very much indeed. Ben Clapworthy, travel correspondent for The Times, of course, on the news uh, that the union uh, of the RMT and ASLEF have basically decided to screw up uh, everybody's enjoyment for the FA Cup final. Two teams from Manchester travelling down to Wembley. They're going to go on strike that day. Uh, so you won't be able to get there by train. Uh, also, they're going to wreck Eurovision, even though it was set up to be uh, and sort of tribute to the Ukrainian people. Uh, and we heard from Ben there that trains run better in Ukraine during a war than they run here. Extraordinary. So they're going to disrupt the Eurovision Song Contest. They're also going to disrupt uh, the day for travellers trying to get to the Derby in Epsom, which is another very, very cynical and ghastly situation. What on earth are they thinking? Who do they think they are actually representing these people, these bozos from the railways? Ridiculous. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. There's an awful lot going on today. Ian Collins will be here just before one o'clock to tell us what's coming up on his show, of course. And it's Vanessa Feltz from four. Plank of the week from seven. Uh, you don't want to miss that. And then it's the Dean Dorries coming up from eight o'clock tonight. And uh, you'll be able to see all of that, of course. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number to call. Um, we're going to talk to Craig McKinley, MP, chair of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, uh, because as you might expect, there's been plenty of action on the uh, Net Zero front. We've had Extinction Rebellion all last weekend, not really demonstrating uh, and apparently getting quite upset that they didn't get much coverage because they didn't demonstrate. And in fact, the guy from Just Stop Oil who jumped onto the snooker table got all the coverage. And now they're thinking, uh, along with Roger Hallam, the guy that founded Extinction Rebellion, uh, that obviously the way forward is not uh, not to be difficult because uh, we've also seen the Just Stop Oil crowd walking slowly through London. Uh, the police are now going to be given new powers to deal with all of that. Uh, we're also going to talk a bit to Craig about about the BBC chair uh, and what's going on with that because it seems to me the BBC is not fit for purpose and the BBC doesn't appear to know what on earth it is doing. Uh, also coming up a little bit later on in the show, uh, we're going to be talking um, uh, to Hugh Andre. Uh, he was here, of course, a couple of weeks ago. Was it a couple of weeks ago? Uh, to help us to watch the uh, uh, signal engineers pushing a Land Rover for charity. Uh, they've managed to actually uh, do it and make quite a lot of money. Uh, so thanks to all of you who might have contributed to that. But we'll be getting an update from you on that front as well. Let's say a very good afternoon, though, now uh, to Craig McKinley. Craig, how are you doing? 
Very well, thanks, Mike. Good to be on. Yeah, very good to be on. We were talking earlier, just to, to, to start off on something slightly different, uh, about the rail strikes and how the RMT now have joined forces with Aslef. And I find it absolutely staggering that they've been this cynical, that they're going to boycott basically the uh, FA Cup final. They're going to make it impossible for people to travel from Manchester to London to watch the game. Um, the, Epsom, the, the Derby in Epsom and now also the Eurovision Song Contest, where we're supposed to be all in sort of solidarity with the, the Ukrainian people. I mean, it's about the most awful thing I can think of them doing well exactly i think they're rapidly losing any support that they had uh, from the public and i think once the public get to know what these people actually do earn at the moment i i think any enthusiasm wanes even further but uh, now they're going to hit some of the you know the, the key events in the social calendar if they cut and Eurovision, if that's your thing, uh, then I, I think that popularity, if there was any left, is is going to dwindle yes. further. I mean, yes. I think get back to work. We, we've got a tough situation in the country. Uh, I know it's an old adage, we're all in this together. But for, uh, I'm afraid, many of these uh, activist uh, leaders of these unions, it's uh, we're all right, Jack, and we want a bit more cream, please. Mm. But uh, there we go. Yeah, exactly right. I'm waiting for Andy Burnham to say something significant about the unions and their inability to help the people of Manchester to get to the cup final. But so far, we haven't heard much. Gary Neville's a bit quiet as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't suppose you'll be hearing much from uh, the the mayor, the mayor of Manchester, who's uh, probably in the same gang together. Yes, well, that is the problem. Let's talk a bit about net zero. We had um, the Extinction Rebellion sort of invasion of London last weekend. Apparently, they're not very happy. They didn't get much coverage, but thankfully, they didn't really disrupt the London Marathon to any great extent. But Just Stop Oil is still having a go. Uh, we've got new policing powers coming in to stop them from walking slowly. Um, but I don't know whether these guys are ever going to get the message that the public isn't behind them now either. Well, no, I mean, they, they choose uh, various events that interfere with people's normal lives. I hate to think about the hospital appointments that are missed and uh, you know school appointments, work appointments. I yeah. mean, that's at the end of the day is what the, the wheels of everybody uh, rolling around is people being at work doing stuff. Uh, but of course, Just Stop Oil, I, I don't suppose they really worry about work too much. No. Uh, when you un- uncover particularly that guy who threw the uh, you know the powder all over yes. them. Edred. Yeah, I mean, he, he's chosen not to work and is crowdfunding his activities. Well, yeah, I mean, nice work if you can get it. Well, his dad's a millionaire, so there's no problem for him. He doesn't have to go to work, does he? Exactly. I wonder, uh, you know, when, when he went on his gap year, probably on a tired beach, clicking his fingers whilst uh, using the pinnacle of capitalist enterprise, the, the newest iPhone or Samsung phone, uh, clicking his fingers for a, another singer beer and a Tom Yum soup. But uh, that's just speculation <laughs> on my part. Yes. Now, there's a big piece in the Telegraph today about net zero and how Britain will struggle to keep the lights on. Um, tell us about that and, and why this green energy kind of crusade is kind of chasing us all down a cul-de-sac. Well, of course, I'm very pleased to see the uh, the, the Business Select Committee actually doing some work on uh, net zero. I, we did some when I was on Public Accounts Committee on the whole electrical vehicle uh, enterprise. Yeah. But let's get some facts. I mean, no doubt the, 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 the business um, group uh, said, oh, we just need more of the same and more subsidies and all the rest of it to make it all work. But let's have some facts, Mike. And I know you're good on facts. Yes. We have about 25% of the entire power use in the UK is electricity. So mm. just a quarter. That's, you know, your, your lights and, and all of that good stuff. Um, there is less than half of that electricity is produced by renewable sources mm. uh, and solar and wind. Gas is the stabiliser. If you remember that advert from old, it was very 
often honourable, if you remember that advert. Yeah. So it's the stabilising force to make sure that the lights do stay on. So if you want to go up a total renewable route, uh, you need to provide that 25% of electricity, which is the entirety of power use, by renewable sources. So you've got the problem of, uh, uh, my favourite word, the Dunkelflauter. Uh, when the wind doesn't blow and the yes. sun doesn't often an anti-cyclone sitting over the UK and Europe for a long period at the coldest time of the year. So you need to store, not only do you need to bulk up the amount of renewables to get you anywhere near to the electricity you might use, you then have to bulk it up by quite a factor, possibly five times, mm. and then store it uh, just to cope with these uh, the periods when there's high demand and low output. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't actually think there are enough children in the Democratic Republic of Congo to actually mine the cobalt mm. batteries that would be required for that. Right. Of course, we could convert excess electricity into hydrogen, uh, but you've got energy losses whenever you transfer one form of energy into another, and then you've got to transmit it. You've got to transmit it through uh, lines that are you know, national grid have not been good at connecting up at the moment, a very big drawback in any of this enterprise. So that's just the electricity we currently have. Uh, the 100% or the, the other 75% is your traditional stuff. It's mm. your petrol and diesel in your, in your fuel tank. It's your gas. It's your you know, off-grid oil. It's all of that stuff. Now, if you want to try and replace all that with electricity, uh, you're going to have to bulk up yet again the mm. amount of and bulk up yet again the amount of excess that you need uh, in order to store it. Now, you know, we, we enter fantasy land, frankly, that any of this is achievable. And this is really the fundamental of why I set up the Net Zero Scrutiny mm. Group. It's got, it's got five features that we pushed 18 months ago, and they're as valid now as they were when we set it up. It's, is this enterprise affordable? Um, there have been studies in the U.S. about what the, the cost of batteries might be to, to roll it out across the U.S. It amounts to you know, tens into hundreds of trillions of dollars. Mm. So, number one, is it affordable? Is it achievable? You know, can we possibly uh, throw up enough um, wind farms, renewable solar and all the rest of it to actually get to uh, this solution? Is it practical is another one. I mean, what sort of changes to our lives are we really prepared to give to save 1% of global CO2 whilst China, Indone mm. Indonesia, uh, India and Africa in time and South America are going gangbusters for more uh, you know, oil, gas and, and uh, coal so that they can keep their industry running? Right. What does this mean to the lower paid, to the vulnerable? Could they possibly afford all this? And do they actually want to and do they need to? Mm. And finally, is there a better way? Now, there's lots of better ways. Um, the better way would be to be sourcing a gas that will be needed. Even the Climate Change Committee agree that gas will be part of the mix way into 2050 and, belong, and beyond. Why on earth are we importing this from Qatar and the US and elsewhere when we have ample around and in the UK? And hence why I'm a supporter of fracking. And, and thank heavens the US did go up the fracking route because it's their fracked gas that is yes. keeping the light on across the winter obviously fully in, in support of nuclear. Nuclear is, is, is domestic, it's reliable, and you know I'm pleased that we are suddenly, uh, finally back on the nuclear track. I do have concerns about Hinkley C and Sizewell C, which I see as uh, building a, a Rolls-Royce, where what we need is lots of Model T Fords yes. of small modular. But uh, yeah, if, if you wanted to have an energy policy, um, we've messed it up for 
25 years, really ever since uh, Tony Blair's 97 manifesto that said, I see no uh, new future in nuclear. Mm. And uh, we're just about getting back on track. So the best time to have put this right was probably 10 years ago. Second best time is now. But all, and, of, those, uh, all of those questions you've asked, eminently sensible questions, but um, very few people ask them. You know, it's almost as though there's this kind of collective miasma going on. I mean, I always refer back to this interview that I did with Grant Shapps when he was briefly um, Home Secretary, I think, when we talked about net zero. And he said, but don't you want Britain to be the world's leader in onshore wind? And I said, not really, no. And he's obviously never been told that because he was quite shocked to hear that somebody didn't actually want that because it isn't practical, it isn't affordable, it isn't doable, it's not achievable. And in fact, you don't have to go as far as India uh, or China to see uh, what, what coal does. Uh, you just have to go to Germany where they've decided that they were so reliant on Russian gas that they've now had to reopen uh, some of their coal-fired power stations. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I can't believe what Germany's doing, really, uh, closing down nuclear power stations that had more life in them. Uh, we've got problems in France where their old reactors are, are, are having some uh, some difficulties. So the, the amount of nuclear coming out of France isn't what it was. Mm. And of course, Germany digging up lignite coal, the worst of the lot, uh, to actually fire up power stations. And but this is you know, further madness in our energy policy. We've we are creating big, big interconnectors with France and Germany. Mm. Uh, when German energy uh, powered on coal is imported to the UK, that is deemed in the UK as net zero because it hasn't been founded here. Right. I mean, you could go on about the greenwash, uh, the the whole Drax power station formula uh, where virgin Which trees... Which is mad, isn't it? It's completely mad. Virgin trees and forests are cut down in, in North America and elsewhere, uh, probably by a diesel-powered uh, you know, machinery and equipment. Mm. It's then pelleted and dried, doubtless on the back of fossil fuel energy to actually dry it. It's then put on a, a ship across the Atlantic, diesel-powered, of course, yes. and then goes into one of these power stations emitting twice as much CO2 as coal and probably four times as much as a gas-powered station, but it's net zero because it hasn't originated here. And uh, the claim is it's all part of the carbon cycle, uh, never mind that the trees won't grow back for 100 or 200 yeah. years. Oh, this, this is, is the old sustainable spirit. forest business that we hear so much about. You know, you can grow some more trees once you've cut them all down, yeah, uh, but you won't be alive when they've grown back, will you? Exactly. So you're actually uh, increasing the CO2 output, uh, burning you know, mature trees uh, with the hope that maybe in 200 years time, you may have re uh, sequestered that uh, into new trees. But, you know, this is the balmy world mm. we're in. I mean, I, I, I have some well a degree of confidence. So there may be a Eureka technology will come around the corner in due course, uh, but it's not here yet. If no. we have well, it's like a lot of people tell me, and in fact, Howard Cox is one of them, um, uh, that the that the electric car will go the way of the Betamax uh, video player, because in fact, electric cars are not terribly efficient. They're not very green. And the batteries that they use are not uh, things that last forever. And probably a hydrogen car will be a better bet at some point when they've got the technology better. And electric cars will just disappear and become sort of the dinosaurs of the new age. Well, yeah, I, I've often likened, yeah, we're, we're all buying Betamaxes where we really should have bought the VHS. And right. I do see EVs as Betamaxes. I mean, I, I spoke to a secondhand car dealer uh, just recently, and he will not categorically sell secondhand EVs. Right. Because uh, secondhand car dealers have to offer a guarantee. Mm. And if the water pump goes in month two, well, that's not so bad. It will cost him £100 to replace it. But if you've got a battery set that goes wrong... 
it could be 10,000, 12,000, yeah. even more. Right. So why on earth would a car dealer want to take on that liability once the manufacturer's guarantee is is out after, say, seven years? The worry is I think we're creating throwaway vehicles because I wouldn't certainly want to buy a 10-year-old no. EV. Uh, because you could end up having to put a £12,000 battery in it that's um, uh, more than the car with the new battery is even worth. Right. So I, I'm afraid they're, they're not green. Uh, we need a lot more electricity to actually power these things that we haven't, haven't got the wherewithal right. to actually create. Uh, and uh, range anxiety, all the rest of it, uh, I don't think they are the way forward. As you say, hydrogen, maybe, possibly, if we can create enough of it, but uh, you always lose power when you, you, you make one form of power and transport it into another one. Um, I think it's all pie in the sky. I would rather uh, we, we wait for technologies that work. I mean, I'm just looking here. Uh, I, I didn't need a, you know, a banning of a boiler to buy uh, a smartphone. I didn't need it. I didn't need my own Motorola ban to no. buy the smartphone. I bought it because it was good. Yeah. And if they can, roll out um, heat pumps and all the rest of it that are of a similar price to your, your traditional boiler, then yes, I think we may consider these things. But uh, it only survives on government subsidy. No such thing as government money. That's taxpayer yeah. subsidy. And it's all pie in the sky. Eminently sensible, Craig. Thank you very much indeed. Craig McKinley, MP, chair of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Why can't all MPs be as sensible as Craig McKinley? Why can't government ministers be as sensible as Craig McKinley? Why can't the people who actually run things in this country be as sensible as Craig McKinley? I just can't tell you the answer to that because the Net Zero Brigade are out in force and they're determined uh, to have us rush headlong down into this cul-de-sac where we'll get to the end of it and it'll be very dark and very cold and there won't be any power, unfortunately. Coming up tonight, after Plank of the Week at 7, uh, we've got Nadine Dorries. Uh, she's on Friday nights, every Friday night at 8 o'clock and she's got plenty to say about the bullying ac uh, accusations being made against Steve Barclay. I first heard the whispers about Steve Barclay a few weeks ago, and I think it was probably around the time that those making spurious allegations against Dominic Raab realised that their claims were not even going to reach the lowest bar in terms of the definition of bullying. I have known Steve Barclay for 18 years, and I would defend him with my dying breath. Professional, respectful, courteous, kind, compassionate, are the words which jump to mind to describe him if I were ever to be asked. I also know what he cares about more than most other issues, and that is patient safety, particularly maternity patient safety. And I cannot think of a better person to serve as Secretary of State for Health than Steve. Steve, Secretary of State for Health, Steve Barclay. Of course, as we were saying yesterday, these allegations are nothing but... Um, Absolute rumour, gossip, absolutely no facts whatsoever. Uh, people who are anonymous claiming that he's a bit of a bully uh, because he's not very pleasant. He's a bit macho. But no actual evidence of any actual incidents. Ridiculous. Watch Nadine Doris tonight from 8 o'clock. Plank of the week from 7. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.